0: We all can be seated, and uh, my name is Todd Berkey, apparently a bald brother of Corby's, right? So, um, one of the pastors here, I work with our young adults, uh, Ministry of Junction, and it's really, um, thank you, it's a great ministry. Actually, I was asked about it earlier today, and it's just, it's a fantastic ministry, and it's an honor and a privilege to get to work with, with that demographic, and it's an honor and a privilege for me to be with you this morning. Um, We're not going to be in Romans yet. Uh, This is one more kind of a one-off thing here, and we're going to be talking about encounters with Jesus, and we're going to be looking at one encounter in particular. But as we get ready to dive in, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, and as you're thinking about that or turning there or, or clicking there, I've got a question. I'm wondering, how do you respond when things don't go as you expect? Like, how do you respond, not, not externally, maybe that way as well, but internally, when, how do you respond when things don't go as you expect? Now, I'm not talking about things from like a decade ago where I was working at a camp and one of the um, new college students, they were getting ready to give their first talk ever. And they had this plan about talking about um, how sin, even just a little sin, taints everything. And so they had this great idea that uh, they would bake a cake and have a cake up on stage. And so it's middle school night. All the middle schoolers are there. This is beautiful cake up on stage. And this person is wanting to communicate just a little sin, just a little sin taints everything. And said, Hey, I've got this chocolate cake. Who would like a piece of this chocolate cake? Now, before any hands could go up, they say, hold on. Before you respond, you need to know this. Last night, I was baking the cake. And as I was putting all the ingredients together, my cat mistook the batter for its litter box. And my cat did his business in the litter box, both one and two. And I didn't have time to remake it, so I just baked it. It was just a little, just a little of his business. Now, who wants a piece of this cake they were so excited, like people are going to be repulsed by this. But it's a middle school <laughs> retreat, and middle school boys are like, boy, this is a badge of honor if I eat that cake. You know, it's my, it's my pathway to manhood. And so they're like, I do! And they wanted to storm the stage, and so they're sitting there going like, what, what, what do I do? Okay, I'm not talking about those types of things not going as you think. I'm talking more about back in my history, I think about when I turned 25. I had trusted Jesus at a, at a young age, but it really wasn't until age 20 that I began to take ownership of my faith. It wasn't until that time that I began to explore God's Word of my own, and I really found myself just captivated with who Jesus was. I began to make gospel-centered changes in my life, and really I tried to orient everything I did around Him. And for five years, I had lived as a radically different person. Uh, changes were happening. And as that was unfolding, I had this, like, unspoken and really not accurate theological truth. That's not really a truth. It was that if I follow Jesus really, really well, I'll be blessed. And blessing would mean that I would be married, that I'd have a great job, a lot of money, and preparing to be a father. So at 25, as I was getting ready to, to, to step in to conclude a quarter century, looking to the next one, when I saw that uh, I was a broke Bible school student, I wasn't dating anyone, and actually I would watched several women that I had tried to pursue, choose somebody who wasn't as Jesus centered, and just, man, I found myself disappointed, confused, and, and depressed because life hadn't gone how I thought it was supposed to go. I had a little pity party. Five years, I've been running after you and you're supposed to give me these things. I was devastated. How do you respond when big things in life don't go how you think? When your dreams don't unfold as you think, maybe a degree program or an employer says, man, your services are no longer needed. When a relationship or a marriage is not unfolding how you thought. When sickness shows up, then when their children... When they abandon the values we work so hard to instill in them, when you watch that unfold, like how do we respond when our greatest hopes don't go how we thought? And this morning we're going to look in Luke chapter 24 at two guys and a community who faced that kind of unexpected situation and I don't know about you, but there are many times uh, when, I, when I open up to Luke 24, I begin to, to look and say, okay, there's these subheadings that are here, like, to help orient myself. And I'm like, oh, the road to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, I allow that familiarity with a story, with an event, to rob me of the beauty of what's going on. And as we're turning there, I just want to remind us that the Gospel of Luke, this is not a sterile or lifeless book that we could just come through and go, cut, 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 and that's great, fine, and dandy. It's not. Uh, This book was written to a guy named Theophilus a couple weeks ago, actually last year. Uh, We pulled from Luke, and I, I shared this with you. It's written to a guy named Theophilus. His name means friend of God. And this Theophilus was somebody who was all in with this Jesus, all in with this church thing, and, and yet it appeared he reached a point where he was uh, bamboozled. Things weren't going how he thought. People were losing their possessions, their friendships, their family, their jobs, and their very lives because of their association with Jesus. And Theophilus needed reassurance. He needed to be reminded of, of who Jesus is, what he has said, and what he has done. And so Luke... Out of this place of a guy being so confused and disoriented by what's happening in his life, he pins the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. That He's pouring himself out to say, I want to remind you of these things. And so as we step into these these events that Luke has tracked down, he's doing this to reassure Theophilus and remind him who Jesus is, what he has done to help anchor him in these times of confusion and doubts. And so when we step into this portion, at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, he's been doing something all along the way that he wants to help reassure Theophilus and us as the readers. And he's going to do some really cool things that I don't want us to miss. But the big idea, what I I want us to see today, is we're going to see this, is that Jesus, he brings hope and clarity in times of confusion. Jesus brings hope and clarity in times of confusion. And I'm just going to give you our three points, and you can be like, okay, I've got it, we're out of here. How does he do it? He does it through his presence, through his word, and through his people. And so we're going to be... And dropping right in there to look at these three things. And just so we're on the same page. Gospel of Luke, you can divide this geographically if you would like. The first couple chapters, it's about Jesus' arrival, and we get to see that Jesus is greater than everything else that's unfolding. He's greater than John the Baptist. You can go back and you compare and contrast things, and you see that, that Luke is saying, hey, John the Baptist was amazing, but Jesus is better. There's just n- nothing greater than who Jesus is. And then you get into chapters 4 through the middle of 9, and you see all the activity that Luke is recording is in the region of Galilee and there's a massive effort that Luke is doing there to establish who is Jesus who is he to remind Theophilus to remind us the readers that who is Jesus is he is he just a prophet is he just a, a good guy? Like, who is he? Because if we don't have that settled, what he says and what he did doesn't matter so much. And so Luke is saying, you need to understand who he is. And it, it, that section comes to the very, like, climaxes with Jesus walking with his disciples. Hey, guys, who, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some say that you're this, and some say that you're that. And he's like, yeah, 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 but who do you say that I am? And Peter, he says, you're the Christ of God. You're Messiah. And it's amazing when you really think and you go back and look at where he declares this. It's in chapter 9, but in chapter 8, we see very quickly that Jesus has just shown that he has absolute authority over nature, demons, disease, and death. And then after Peter makes this declaration, you were the Christ, you were the Son of God, they head up to the Mount of Transfiguration where they meet Moses and Elijah, right, and Jesus. And just so there's no confusion who Jesus is, when Peter's like, hey, we should build some tabernacles here, just so there's no confusion, God himself speaks and says, this is my Son, listen to him. And now we've established as the reader who Jesus is. And then quickly we move on to the rest of 9 through 19, and it's Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And if, if you have a red-letter Bible, it's pretty funny because you'll, you'll sit there, and when you get to that section, all of a sudden it's just a whole bunch of teaching, a whole bunch of parables. It just turns red all over the place. He still does some miracles to continue to remind people who he is, but it's a huge thing of teaching. And it goes all the way up until finally he arrives in Jerusalem in the end of 19 through 24. So keep that in mind, okay? As we're getting ready to step in, I know we're doing a lot of backtracking here, but bear with me. Jesus, he's the son of God. He is the Messiah. He's teaching these radical things that are new and amazing, and they're like, what? And now they come in to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. Just imagine the city with a buzz as it receives the Messiah. And then there's a massive, unexpected twist that if we're not Careful, and we treat the Gospel of Luke as just something sterile, we'll miss this. This wasn't supposed to happen, something that made no sense to anyone. This most powerful, most wise, always victorious Son of God was betrayed, falsely accused, beaten, mocked, takes the place of the guilty Barabbas, who was a murderer. He was crucified, killed, and died. Messiah was not supposed to do that. Not according to anybody's understanding. Not according to anybody's hope. This was a shocking, confusing, and discouraging time. More so to those who were closest to him his disciples and those women and others who traveled with Jesus. They had hoped in him. This was not how things were supposed to go. That's where we're entering into this story. There's a sense of of heaviness, and then something strange happens. Women go to to take their burial spices to put on Jesus' body, and they get to the tomb, and the stone is rolled away, but His body is not there, and they're incredibly confused. Read with me here 24, 4 through 9, and while they, they were the women looking, they're just perplexed by there's no body here. Are they're perplexed about this. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in gleaming clothing. And as the women were terrified, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Now, we're used to that text, right? because we know how the story goes. We're like, yeah, he is. We're like, that's victorious. This is, like, Confusing. And so he does this great thing, remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinful men and and be crucified, and on the third day rise from the dead. And I think this is amazing, in verse 8, they remembered his word, number 9, verse 9, they returned from the tomb, and they reported all things to the eleven, and then don't miss this, and to all the rest, reported to the eleven and all the rest, because that's going to be important, because we're going to be talking about all the rest when we get to the walk of Emmaus. This is still confusing to them. As a matter of fact, they give the report, right? And what are the, the apostles? They look at these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe the women. And I think it's important for us to know, too. These guys were skeptical. This was not like an easy shift for them. Like, oh, he, he's raised. Oh, okay. Like, that's not what's unfolding. It was very difficult for them. Nonsense, that, nonsense, that word, it means silly talk, idle talk. In a medical setting, it's the delirious talk of the very sick. And you know, I think about uh, kids when they sometimes, they have night terrors and they're, they're, they're not really awake. You know, there's this glassy-eyed look, but they're like, they're, they're terrified. And, and one of our children had that, and uh, we're, like, we're trying to engage, but he's just saying things that don't make sense. And like, I don't want to go. Do I have to go? Like, no, you don't have to go. He's like, okay, I'll go. Like, okay, you can go. You know, my name is, and then my favorite, my favorite, my favorite number is green. I'm like, "What are you talking about? Green's not a number. It's just nonsense because he's not in his right mind. That's what this felt like to the people. Jesus is alri- alive. He's risen. It was nonsense. They didn't readily say,, like, "Oh, great." Peter, though he had seen Jesus do some incredible things. He and others, they get up, they go and explore, they see things are empty. He sees the gla- grave clothes but nobody doesn't really know what to do with that, so he goes away pondering and confused. So that's the setting that we're stepping into our text today. So how does Jesus bring hope and clarity into their confusion? And again, we said there are three things, the first of which is his presence. I'm going to read here 24, 13 through 16. And behold, on that very day, the very day that all this is happening, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, which was 60 stadia, or about seven miles from Jerusalem, They were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We don't know the exact location of Emmaus. There have been a few different towns over the years. People are like, this is it, this is it, this is it. It doesn't really matter where the town is. What matters is what are these guys walking and talking about? And their conversation, we know this conversation is all about Jesus, all about confusion, and we know that it's an emotional and heavy conversation. We know that because of the Greek word that's there. It's only used 10 times in the New Testament. That's used for discussing. Eight of the 10 times, it means to debate or to argue. Luke's only other time of using this word is just back a couple chapters at the Last Supper. They're eating in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 23. Back in it before that, in um, 21, he says, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with, my, with me on this table. They're here. The one's going to betray me, and they're here. For indeed, the Son of Man is going, as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to Debate. They began to discuss. They began to argue among them which of them was going to do this. Like, it's not me. It's not, no, no, not me. It's got to be you. No, it's got to be not not me. It's you. And so this this is not like an emotionalist conversation. Like, there's heated stuff. Of course, to the disciples, the incredible thing there is they quickly go, it's not me. It's not me. Actually, I'm the best. The very next verse they start talking about, they argue, I'm better than what you are. These guys, they're talking. It's a heavy, heavy conversation. And I think it's funny, in the middle of that, while they're talking and discussing, Jesus himself approaches and begins to travel with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So they're talking about Jesus to Jesus without knowing that it's Jesus they're talking with. I don't know if that's, has that ever happened to you. You ever had anybody come and talk about you, to you, not knowing that it's you? It's happened to me actually twice in my life. <laughs> Um, years ago, when I, when I was playing tennis and I started coaching people in tennis, um, I was watching this, I was coaching this gal. She was getting ready to wrap her match up, and these three guys come up. We were in my hometown watching the tournament. They're talking about how great she is. I'm like, yeah, she is. she's a really good player. She needs to work on her serve. She needs to work on this, her footwork. And then, uh, so things were kind of normal, but then it got really awkward because they said, hey, do you know a guy named, and I, I forget what the guy's name is, it, you know, do you know a guy named Joe whoever? And I'm like, no, I, I don't. I don't, I don't. Recognize the name? Oh, well, he was the best. He would come down here, and he would destroy that overrated player, Todd Berkey. Todd Berkey was just the worst player ever. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm supposed to respond to this. Like, dude, I'm Todd. So um, they start talking about just how overrated I am, um, how I used to lose to this guy that I've never heard of before, and that I'm not as good as what people say. I'm like, whatever. I mean, it was an awkward moment. And so I was like, I didn't want to embarrass them, so I was like, I'll just be quiet. So I'm just quiet, and they continued about like, oh, he makes really bad line calls. I'm like, dude, this is getting personal. (laughs) And just when I thought it couldn't get more awkward, the match is wrapping up, and they have another friend who shows up and says, hi, my name, my name's like David Johnson. And I'm like, well, I don't want to lie. Hi, my name is Todd Berkey. their faces were like, huh? You, you look taller on the tennis court. I'm like, it's totally fine, and then we walked off. Uh, so, yeah, there it is, that awkward moment, but that's exactly what's going to happen here in our text. They're talking about Jesus to Jesus and having no idea who He is, and I don't want, I don't want us to miss this. We, the readers, including Theophilus, the original reader, He is aware what these other people are not. In their times of confusion, Jesus is there. He is active. How cool is that? Even though they're unaware. It's a little bit like in Hebrews chapter 13 where they're quoting from the Old Testament. It talks about, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you, so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. These guys and their confusion, they were not alone. Even though they were unaware of it, He was still there. And the same is true for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul is writing, and he says, Hey, do you not know that your body is actually the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Or in Matthew 28, verse 20, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember this, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's there, but he's more than just there. He's there and he's engaged. And I think this is incredible. We see this, Jesus walks up, he says, hey, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they came to a stop looking sad. I think it's interesting, right? Here he is. Uh, What are you guys talking about? Well, we're talking about this Jesus guy. And then we know that this is heavy because they stop. Like they're walking like, wait, what? And then their facial expression, sad. Sad. The only other time that that word is used in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus is talking on the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who simply put on a show with their gloomy, hungry faces, trying to let people know how hungry you are. But these guys are not putting on a show. They can't hide it. They're hurting, and they're sad, and they're confused. And yet Jesus stays engaged. Read with me here. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, "Um, Are you possibly the only one living near Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that have happened here these days? And Jesus said to them, What sort of things? (laughs) And they said to him, Those about Jesus the Nazarene who proved to be a prophet mighty indeed in word and the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and to crucify him. (laughs) And we were hoping... We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. (laughs) Indeed, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened, and some woman among us left us bewildered. When they were at the tomb early this morning, they did not find his body. They came back saying that they had seen a vision of some angels who said that he was alive. And then some of those who were with us, they went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women did, but they didn't see him. Jesus is right there, and I think this is really a cool thing. See how open Cleopas is being? He's holding nothing back. He's like, my heart has been ripped out of my chest. We thought this was Jesus, the Messiah. We thought he was the Redeemer. We thought he was the one, and I'm just confused, and I'm just hurting. And, like, you just see him laying it all out there. He's not being fake. He's fully open, no mask, no filter. We were hoping. I'm going to pause for a moment. When there are times of confusion and discouragement hit, Jesus, he's present and he's engaged, and he's willing to hear us out, raw and unfiltered. If you don't know Jesus that way, then you need to know that's who he is. He can handle whatever it is that you're hurting over. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to respond how we want or when we want, because what does he do here? Does he say, ha-ha, I'm here, guys? No, he doesn't immediately reveal himself. He's listening. He's there, but he's still hidden. So finding hope and clarity in those times, we need to remember and trust that Jesus is present and engaged, even if we don't sense or feel his nearness. But he didn't just stop with his, his presence. He's, he's going to continue to his word. How do we find hope and clarity also in his word? He's going to actually give them a rebuke and redirection, which I know we all love that, right, When at any time, but especially when we're feeling low. But I think that Jesus, what he's doing there, he's trying to get their eyes off of themselves and off of their own logic, off of their own circumstances for just a moment and direct them to where they should be and onto his word and to his promises. Luke 24, verses 25 and 26. And so some of them who were with us went to the tomb in, I'm sorry, 25 and 26. And then he, Jesus, said to them, You foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? And again, I just want us to pause and go, This is God being incredibly loving. He doesn't leave them in their time of confusion and discouragement. He loves them enough to sit there and spend some time with them and redirect that energy to get their eyes off the situation and on to God's Word, to God's promises, and eventually it's going to be on to himself. Because they know that as long as we are focused on the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I... And discouragement is just going to continue. And as long as we're focused only on the here and now without an eternal perspective, it's just a deadly place to be. And so he, he's helping them get their eyes off of themselves and onto him and onto eternity. And that's where there's the best sanity. It's the most loving thing that he can possibly do. God-centered and Christ-centered thinking. And then he asks them the question. He's capturing their attention with this question. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? Wouldn't you like to be there just at that moment? (laughs) We don't have the responses. We don't know if there was a long, awkward pause. We don't know if they argued with Jesus to simply look at things from their perspective. We have no idea. We do know that Jesus is stepping into their confusion, discouragement with hope and clarity by bringing in God's word. And I think this is really beautiful because it's not in a cold way. He's not preaching at it. He's connecting it to their hope. Remember, back in verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And he's like, oh, that's your hope. Don't you remember all the things that were written? So he rebukes them, redirects them, and then he connects it to their hope. And I think it's pretty amazing from here. He begins to build on on what they know, right? And so you continue to read there and it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all of the scriptures. And it it captures this this idea of progressive revelation. I think a lot of times, again, we sit there and go like, "Oh, we read all these texts in the Old Testament. Like, oh, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's Jesus." But the original readers, when they're coming through there, they would have never connected things. It's it's a lot like, it's a lot like this. It's I don't know if you guys ever did these uh, stereograms, 3D hidden objects. Um, they were arranged many years ago, and I would walk through the mall, and there was a whole bunch of these there, and I would just look at them like, I don't see what's happening here. I mean, I guess this is colorful and that's amazing and awesome, and, and people would say, well, no, you got to relax your eyes. you got to look through it. you got to get close with your nose and then begin to back out, and you're going to see a whale or you're going to see a swordfish, and you're going to see a turtle, and you're going to see several other fishes and some seahorses, all of which are in this picture, but you just can't see it Because you're looking at it wrong, and so you need invitation and explanation about where they are. We don't have time to sit here, but this is where they are when you relax your eyes and look through it. There's a swordfish, two seahorses, three fishes, and a sea turtle all hanging out there. And when you see it, you see it, but initially you don't. And so all of these promises were there, and they were not clear to these guys because Messiah was not supposed to suffer. And so Jesus says, hey, hey, we're going to back up. We're going to walk through things. Prime example, Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, after the fall, Adam and Eve say, hey, I know we're created to be dependent relationship with you, but instead we're going to go our own way. That's what the Bible calls sin, and that's what causes all the brokenness because we are designed and we, to function in a dependent relationship with God, to have our eyes directed towards Him because we're created to image Him. And they said, no, thank you. We like our image. And it shatters everything. And as God is coming out and and Saying, here's the results of all this. He says, I'm going to make, talking to the serpent, Satan, I'm going to make enemies between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. He shall crush you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And we sit there and go, ho ho, that's Messiah, that's Jesus. People reading early on, there's no way they would have connected that. They would have never said, oh, God's going to send His Son, born of a virgin, who will live perfectly and will choose to die on a cross to pay the price needed to redeem the world and redeem me. If I only believe in His promised provision, I will be forgiven and free from sin's power and penalty, and I will live forever with the Lord, free from sin's presence. Nobody would have been thinking that when they read this initially. But Jesus goes back and begins to connect. Guys, all along, I am the seed. We don't know which scriptures he turned them to. Their scrolls didn't have chapters and verses. I kind of think that maybe he went back and said, you know, you guys remember at the end of Genesis 3 there, getting ready to leave the, leave the garden, what did God give them? He gave them animal skins. There was sacrifice. There's always death associated with sin. That the penalty has to be paid. There's a substitute. Animals were substituted for that. He might have then said, you know, it's, don't you remember Leviticus 16, talking about the day of atonement, an animal taking the place, paying the price for, for your sins and our sins? Don't you remember Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would bear our sins? Just begin to connect the dots. You guys thought Messiah was going to do this all along the way of the plan, and I told you, you just couldn't hear me, you weren't ready. The plan has been that I will come and liberate you from a greater enemy than Rome. It'll be sin. It's presence. It's a power. It's a penalty. I'm taking care of all of it. I ask that you simply believe. And that's why the gospel is such great news. Because we're all broken. And there's nothing we can do about that brokenness. And that's why Jesus came to take my place, to take your place, to pay death. That's what's owed, to bring us back into a right relationship with Him. And He doesn't ask us to do anything other than to say thank you. And that is incredible. Good news that they need to be reminded of, we need to be reminded of. His word brings hope and clarity as it moves us to this eternal perspective. Real quick, his presence bonus, I just want to back up really fast. They get to Emmaus and Jesus is like, I'm gonna keep walking. And so they say, No, 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 no. They strongly urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting, you know, toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And this is so cool. What does Jesus do? He stays with them. I think this is incredible. Jesus' willingness to remain engaged with these guys, he never turns down an invitation for time. There's never a time when we want more, and he says, no, I'm too busy. He's like, okay. Ask, seek, and knock, and I'm going to move towards you every single time. Even though... These guys are now unaware. They're tired from the journey. They've been processing having things and their confusion, discouragement. They've been rebuked. They've been redirected. They've been reminded of God and his word. And now they sit down to have a meal. 24, 30, and 31. And it came about when he, Jesus, reclined at the table with them. He took the bread and blessed it and he broke it and began giving it to him. 31, and then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He is alive. And he vanished from their sight. We have no idea what tipped him off. No clue. But after the struggle and after the confusion, at a time not determined by them but by God, he revealed himself to bring clarity and hope. Again, remember just Theophilus. Here are these confused guys who is not going how we thought and jesus was there the entire time engaged with them active directing them back to the promises of god and they went we don't know how long they would continue to walk we don't know how long their dinner was going on but at a time when jesus determined not when they determined he reveals himself and they're like oh my goodness there is hope and clarity to This whole Jesus weekend that we had together, He came in as Messiah, He was Messiah, He just liberates from somebody different. This is incredible. The third place for hope and clarity is God's people because it's just not over. The story's not over. They got up at that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven, gathered together. And those with whom they were saying, The Lord really has, guys, the Lord has really risen. And he had to have appeared to Simon. This is true, all of it's true. It's incredible, right? Because it was nighttime. It's dangerous to travel at night. They're like, don't go on. It's, it's night. You've got to be tired, and it, you don't want to be out there. There's, there's robbers, and they said, this news is so great. We can't hold it to ourselves. We have got to return back because we know there's other confused, discouraged people. I will go back, and I will share my experience. We're going to share our experiences. And even though we're not one of the 11, we're maybe an outsider. Will they listen to this? Will they not? Will they treat us like the women and just not think we're nonsense? Doesn't matter. I have to go. I have to engage. And so they do. They show up and they share this story, right? 34 and 35, the Lord has really risen. He has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experience on the road. Now he was recognized by them at the breaking of the bread. I think it's important for us to know that sharing our stories with his people, that brings hope and clarity in our times of confusion and discouragement, both for us and others too. And for us, when we share those times where we've seen God move in incredible ways, it's a great reminder over and over again that He is incredibly faithful. So it, it, it encourages us the more and more we begin to share and process how we've seen His faithfulness. He didn't work on our timetable. We don't belittle the times of struggle because we live in a broken world and, and broken things happen. But we don't walk through any of those things alone. And even when we can't sense or feel His presence, He's there. But then also for others, when we share as coming alongside, we begin to share the things that we have walked through that are real similar that others are walking through. There's hope and clarity for them too. They may not have any idea what the purpose is. They may have no idea what He's doing, but He is there, and they're hearing stories over and over and over again. It reminds them not to be so lost in me and now and look to Him in eternity. It's a beautiful thing. Now, Remember, Cleopas and his friend, they were engaging with Jesus on the road. They didn't recognize him, but it was Jesus in his body walking, talking, and eating with him. And many times I will talk to people, and they'll say, if Jesus, if he were walking and talking and eating with me in his body, that would bring hope in hard times, but he doesn't. Man, if that's you or me, if we're like, man, If Jesus showed up, then I'd be encouraged, but anything less than that, I'm not, because his body is not right here, there's no way. Can I remind and possibly rebuke just a little, just a little bit here? His ways are different than ours, that Jesus' body is here on earth right now. It is active, and it's often unnoticed, especially in times of confusion and discouragement. Paul writing into the Corinthians, now you, you believers, you are Christ's body, and each of you is a member of it. Colossians 1, eight. He, Christ, is also the head of the body. That's the church. And I don't want us to miss this. They're both, if we're walking through a hard time and there are men and women who are walking alongside of us, who are believers and encouraging us, that's not a second-rate appearance of the Lord. It is God's body moving towards you in a beautiful way, and we should not diminish that. I also want to encourage us. Maybe you've walked through a hard time, and you're sitting there, and you're seeing others who are struggling. You are Christ's body, and we are called to move towards those who are hurting and bring encouragement. It's a beautiful reality. The church, the body of Christ, we're not a second-rate body of Christ. There's great, great encouragement and even when we move many times we'll move towards folks to try to help it that's unrealized that they're encountering christ through us but it doesn't matter we still as his body move towards people wrapping it up jesus brings hope and clarity in these times of confusion it's really fun i encourage you to read just the rest of the 24 so they show up right and they're like hey Jesus is real. He's alive, and all these things. And we don't know exactly if they're still doubting, but who shows up at that same time? Jesus in his body. Hey, guys, what's up? I'm hungry. He's supporting their very action and their declaration, and then he sends them on a charge at the very end of 24 of like, hey, I want you guys to go be witnesses. I want you guys to all go out and tell people what God has done. I want you to go and be clear about the beauty and the power of who he is, what he's taught, and what he has accomplished at the cross. His life, death, burial, and resurrection brings about victory. It was not defeat. It was victory, and it was necessary, and it's always been the plan of God to bring people back to himself was the cross. That's what... Man, there's hope and clarity. And how does he do that? Through his presence, through his word, through his people. And I think about what are we going to do with this? How do we apply? How do we apply this? Just, I've alluded to it, I've said it several times, but I'll talk about it as well one last time. If we're in the middle of confusion right now, things just aren't going how you think. Big things, big loss. And I'm not, I'm not minimizing The pain of those dreams not coming true. You just need to know you're not alone. You're not. And so, if we are in confusion, I I just want to encourage us to talk with the Lord. Be open, be fully like, this is what we thought, this was my hope. They were dashed to pieces. Like, no mask, no filter, be okay, because he's okay hearing that. Be in his word. Like, well, where, do I, where am I supposed to look if I'm just kind of needing some reassurance? Well, Habakkuk is an interesting book to go into that, God, why aren't you doing something? I am doing something. God, I don't like what you're doing there. I don't like how that's going. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, whoa. and he ends up with this amazing declaration at the end. Or maybe you read the Gospel of Luke, written to reassure and reaffirm people who are struggling, wondering, is it worth it to continue on? Or maybe it's Psalm 73, The psalmist is confused, like, why are all the wicked prospering? I don't understand this. And then you get to this place of, like, oh, then I begin to see eternity, and I understand. Like, I'm not mad anymore. I get it. And then be in community. And not just people who are yes men around you, but people who are willing to listen deeply and encourage you authentically, that they're willing to share their own lives with you as well. Seek that outlook to give it away, and look to receive it from others. If you've gone through times of confusion, which I'm willing to bet all of us have, I'd encourage us all of the above and be willing to share with others with compassion. We come into a room like this, it's really easy to come in and leave and not be noticed and think, like, I wish I had community like that. I wish I had a few people around me like that. There are opportunities that abound Cultivate that's going to start at 1030, I believe. It's about different small groups of how to get connected. We have Bible studies and other small groups that are starting, getting ready to step into smaller communities. I know there's a women's event that's coming that you can grab a friend and go and develop those relationships. We have men's retreat that's coming, opportunities for us to come and just be open and honest about the great things that God has done in our lives, but also to be like, man, I'm in a hard place right now, but to know that you're not alone in the middle of that, but it all starts with a willingness of us to engage and to take those steps and be the kind of people who are willing to see suffering around us, be willing to step in with the hope of the gospel. Jesus brings hope and clarity in times of confusion through his presence, through his word, and through his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Um, (laughs) Truly, we thank you. We're never alone, no matter what we face. Father, we're we're not just... uh, forgotten when we can't sense your presence it doesn't mean that you're not here you will never leave us you will never forsake us well father i pray if we were here and we're in a time right now of hurting and confusion that we would be just mindful of that lord that we would begin to get glimpses of who you are from those around us from your word Father, I pray that we would also have the courage here in this room if we're not in deep community and we don't even know how to. Lord, we take some steps, whether it's to come to men's retreat, whether it's to go to the women's event, whether it's to get plugged in uh, through a community group at Cultivate at, at 1030 here. You can learn more about that or whatever it is. But would you nudge us to take those steps so that we can be around the body of Christ that brings hope and clarity in times of confusion. We truly, we truly love you. Really, we thank you for our time that we've had together. We thank you that there is living hope with you, Lord, because you are active and you're present in our lives. Amen.